We're going to talk about the subject of prayer. Uh, prayer has been written about by countless pastors and theologians over centuries. Uh, just uh, scores of books written on the subject of prayer. John Calvin, John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis. Just some of those who have written books dedicated to the subject and the importance of prayer. Uh, nearly all of them touch on at least a couple of similar themes in their books, one being the privilege of prayer, what we have as believers in Jesus Christ and being able to commune with God is a remarkable privilege. And nearly all of them touch at least to some degree on the struggle that most of us as believers have with neglect of prayer and the consequent guilt that we feel over some of that neglect. Isaac Watts, who pastored in London in the 18th century, he probably sung his hymns at one time or another, prolific hymn writer, wrote a book called A Guide to Prayer, and it starts like this. Prayer is so great and necessary a part of religion that every degree of assistance in it will be always acceptable to pious minds, but a regular scheme of prayer as a Christian exercise or a piece of holy skill has been much neglected. If I might take some liberty with that and simplify as you're pondering his 18th century language there, I think what he's saying is prayer is really important. And, and we should welcome any biblical wisdom we can gain to help us to be more effective in our praying because that will help us because we need it because it's hard to do. It is hard to, to stay in regular practice because of the, the challenges that we face, certainly from Satan and the world and the distractions. And so for today and through this month of January, we're going to talk through a number of different topics together. Next week, in fact, we'll look at Christian giving, see what Scripture has to say about that. But today the topic is prayer. Good timing, I think, for it. We are hours away from the start of a new year. This is often the time when we think about priorities and times and schedules and maybe reordering some things, some disciplines, habits, all those sorts of things that we kind of ponder as the new year approaches. Uh, it was certainly on my mind as I thought about this topic, uh, prayer is an area that I want to grow in. It's an area that I don't feel like I do enough. So this is not me telling you what to do. This is you and I together going to God's Word and, and learning what Scripture says and pleading for help from God's Spirit to apply these things this morning. Um, I also want to commend a book to you that, that was probably helpful to me just in general direction of, of where I'm going this morning. It's a book by Paul Miller called A Praying Life. Um, no book and no sermon for that matter is perfect. Uh, scripture is what we all ultimately rely on, but if you are looking for a work to help you think about your prayer life, I would highly commend Miller's book, A Praying Life. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And we are looking here at the latter part, a section of the latter part of um, the Sermon on the Mount. A long, one of Jesus' longest message covers Matthew 5 through 7. It is him speaking on a variety of topics to a large crowd, and, and he works through each one. And we get here in Matthew chapter 7, and I just want to pick up and take one small section, verses 7 through 11 of Matthew chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So much of what precedes this, again, starting back in chapter 5, is is Jesus walking through a series of sort of practical instructions for everyday life. So if I look at Matthew 5 through 7, it will cover a lot of ground. Things like protecting the covenant of marriage, being generous to those who are in need, being truthful in your dealings with other people, loving your enemies, not getting caught up in materialism, not getting dragged into anxiety. Uh, Just before this, the section talks about not judging others. If indeed you are harboring sin in your own heart that you're not dealing with, you shouldn't be about the business of trying to, to pick that out in other people's lives. All of that precedes this portion in verses 7 through 11. Commentator Leon Morris says it it, it fits well in that sense. He says, Jesus has set a high standard before his followers in the preceding section. How are they to reach it? Prayer is an important part of that answer. We need to pray. Just I, I couldn't underline more the word need. We need to pray. It's not just because we are called to pray in Scripture, because we are urged to, because we have a sense of obligation, or because we feel guilty when we don't. We simply need to pray. And I think at the heart of what we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 7 is Jesus communicating this, that we are called to persist in prayer in a, a childlike faith and humility and helplessness. The relational component of this passage, as you'll see, is key, that he is Father. And we are called to pray because we need to, because we are helpless. And and we need to come in childlike faith to our Father and pray. The outline for this morning you have in your bulletins there, but just three points that we'll walk through, premise, principle, and promise. And the premise, the starting point really is at the end of the section, verse 11. the, The foundation that underlies what Jesus says at the beginning to ask seek and knock, expecting God to answer that, the premise that he then gives is our relationship to God the Father. Because of belonging to him as our heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ, because of our union with him in that way and and, and who he is and our dependence on him, it, it should be immediately evident that we need to pray that we need to be like children when it comes to talking to our Heavenly Father. We are His children. We need that communion. And so the premise here in verse 11, he says, Jesus speaking, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? had the privilege over the last couple of weeks of seeing many of your Christmas cards. A lot of them are photos. They're those wonderful family photos that are so uh, accurately depicting what everyday life looks like in our homes, right? That, that wonderfully posed picture where everybody is well-dressed and the children are all well-behaved. And, and that's just what like Tuesday night at 6 o'clock, for example, looks like, right? Well, you know, that's not, it's not an accurate portrayal of, of every moment in the lives of our homes. But they, they are nonetheless wonderful pictures to see loving parents and loved children. To, to see the, the, the pictures of families who care about each other and love one another deeply. And when Jesus talks here about parents giving good gifts to their children, for many of us, we've just experienced that in this past week. Might have been a son or daughter, might have been a niece or nephew, might be grandchildren, but that that thrill of being able to give something to a child who just eagerly receives it 
and, and sees it as just a wonderful gift, and, and, and they just sort of celebrate in an uninhibited way that gift that you've given. Jesus takes this even a step further, and he says, listen, you're sinful. He's talking not only to the crowd there, but to, to you and I. You are selfish by nature. You do things that are contrary to the will of God. We can be a very selfish people, and yet, he says, generally speaking, we have this desire to do good by our kids. We still have this inner desire to want to give them good gifts, and often we follow through on that, and we give them things to try to care for them. Now, certainly there are exceptions to that. There are abusive parents who fail even on that most basic of counts, but as Jesus is saying this to a a large crowd, speaking not only to them, but by application to you and I, I, I think we can say that this is very much a general truth, that we who are foolish and sinful and selfish by nature, still find it in our being to want to and to follow through on giving our kids good gifts, on on caring for them and providing for them. In fact, Jesus in verses 9 and 10 sort of gave the the opposite of this and says, listen, even if you, you don't aren't able to give good gifts, you certainly don't want to give your children harmful gifts. The the description in verses 9 and 10 is of the child asking for food, for bread or for fish, and he says, you you don't give them a stone or or a deadly snake. No, because you want to do well by them. So even if you don't have the capacity to give your child everything that you wish you could give, you you at the same time know it better than, than even to try to give them harm. You don't want to do that. You don't want to hurt them in some way. You want to do well by them. The argument here is from the lesser to the greater. If the ability to lovingly care for children and give good gifts to them is within the capacity of you and I as sinful human beings, then how much more is it within the ability and the desire of our loving, perfect, heavenly Father who knows our, our deepest needs? who is able to care for us and knows what it is that we really need, even when we don't fully know that ourselves. That premise, then, behind the call to ask and seek and knock is you have a relationship with the God of the universe as your heavenly Father. And if if you get any kind of glimpse of parenting... We've all been a child. Some are parents here. If you get any glimpse of that, you understand that there is, generally speaking, a desire to do right by that child and to care for that child. How much more does the transcendent God of the universe want to do well by you as your heavenly Father? The one who has created and spoke it into existence comes to you as father there's a deeply relational piece to this that should encourage and empower and and humble our praying our willingness to go to him as children who are sometimes broken who are oftentimes messy who don't have it all together exactly as we want our kids to come to us when they are in need so too we have the opportunity to go to our heavenly father Paul Miller, in in the book I mentioned earlier, points to Psalm 23 in that opening line, the Lord is my shepherd. And he points to the fact that the Lord is a term speaking of the the infiniteness of God, the fact that he is transcendent, that he is overall, that he is great. The Lord is my shepherd. You can't get much more personal than that, is the one who cares for me, who looks after me and tends to me. 
Romans 8, when it describes those who are trusting in Jesus Christ as being adopted by God, he says that he puts the Spirit within us to cause us to cry out, Abba, Father, to use that Aramaic term, my Father, my Father, my Father, that the, the intimacy of our connection with God because of what's been done in our lives through Jesus Christ. Galatians 4 touches on the same points. It's talking about God not only redeeming you and I out of slavery to sin, purchasing us out of slavery to sin, but then making us his children. In Galatians 4, 6, and 7 says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. There is an intimate bond that you and I have, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, to God, to God our Father. And that should, should draw us into prayer, should draw us into communion with him. That relationship not only allows us the privilege of approaching the God of the universe with the, the, the things that are on our hearts and the burdens that we are experiencing, but because we know that he loves us more perfectly than even our earthly parents have, loves us and knows us better than even we know our children, it should encourage us all the more to desire to commune with him and to pray. There's that family relationship to God the Father, but the other Part of that, too, is the fact that in, in being joined with Christ, Romans 8 describes us as fellow heirs with Christ. Not only do we get the basic understanding of what you and I have as parent-child relationship and, and begin to, to glimpse what it means to have a perfect, loving, heavenly Father, but we also get to see in Jesus Christ modeled what it is to be a son of God and how reliant he is on the Father, how much he depends on God the Father. Jesus intentionally, throughout the Gospels, makes himself to be very plainly relying on his Father, speaking what his Father tells him. And he, he's not ashamed of that. He's not ashamed of that childhood. In fact, he wants people to understand that he is not acting on his own, but rather that he is doing what his Father has sent him and empowered and equipped him to do. Early in his earthly ministry, Jesus is in Capernaum, and you may remember the story when he um, heals the, the mother-in-law of Peter in Capernaum. And after that healing, when sunset comes, it's on the Sabbath. And so after that healing, that evening, people begin to flock to this home where Jesus is. And they bring sick loved ones and demon-oppressed, demon-possessed loved ones. And they bring them to Jesus for healing and for, uh, for salvation, if you will, from demons, for the casting out of demons. And, and it describes Jesus as carrying on this ministry to this large crowd. And then the Gospel of Mark takes us to the very next morning in Mark 1.35. And it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Two things that jump out, at least to me, about Jesus Christ having had this ministry the evening before to this large crowd... And then the, the next morning, going off early to a desolate place to pray. One is, he, he's demonstrated already the power of God. He has healed people. He has cast out demons. From purely human terms at this point, we would describe Jesus as being successful. You know, it was a, an effective night of ministry. It couldn't have gone much better. People were healed and set free from demons, and so Jesus 
clearly demonstrates that the power of God is at work in him. The, the second thing to keep in mind then is it's not like his schedule is just free and easy and, and wide open for the day because, in fact, while he's there praying, Peter and the other disciples are looking for him, and, and they come out to this desolate place to find him, and they say to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Jesus knows this. this. This was not the end. This was only the beginning of the crowds and the ministry. And so he is entering into a day that is going to be full of ministering to people and talking with people and healing people. I don't know about you, but I think those two points are relevant. Because when there is a lot going on, especially when it's, it's good, when it seems to be effective and, and all seems to be going well, it's, it's easy for me, at least for me it is, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to get distracted from praying. Things are going great. It, it, you know, things are going well, everything's clicking, it's all right. And, and it, it, it almost at those moments, ridiculously enough, almost doesn't occur to me that I need to pray because it seems like, well, it's just, it's all happening. And I'm not thinking about that. Especially when you add to that a full day. When you look at the, the calendar in the morning on the phone and it's just meeting after meeting and, and this and that and you've got a full day ahead of you, it gets real easy in my mind to say, well, that's, that's a good excuse to try to get a good night's sleep and then just get out and get at it and, you know, and get going with whatever needs to be done. And yet here is the Son of God in the power of God having healed people intentionally making time to go and commune with his Father, to again, express, even in front of his disciples who come and find him, his utter dependence on the Father to do everything that he is going to do. It is Jesus, again, humbling himself to give us a visual display of what it is to be a child of God and the joy it is to be able to have that communion with the Father and to seek that out. Jesus was not inadequate in any way, but it is very clear from the the repeated references in the Gospels from Jesus himself that he is intentionally depending on the Father. And so in John 5, 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. A few verses later, I can do nothing on my own. Son of God, awesome Son of God, declaring to people in his own humility, his own weakness, if you will, in the sense that he is fully dependent on the Father to carry out work through him. John 14.10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. That is, that is childlike humility in the sense of saying, I'm, I'm not seeking credit for any of this. I must depend on my Father. He has to work in this in order for there to be effective ministry, and I rely on him. That is the Son of God expressing a determined commitment to not go it alone, but to fully rely on the strength and wisdom of his Father. So the need for the Son to spend time in prayer with the Father is starkly evident, and that is the kind of dependence he is modeling for you and I. So when he's teaching about prayer here in Matthew 7, he's coming to us as a fellow heir and, and, and exhorting us to do what he does all throughout the Gospels, to ask and to seek and to go to his Father and, and to plead for that day and all that lies ahead. If in the midst of an extraordinarily favorable and busy time, Jesus 
Christ refused to go it alone and, and, and had to depend on the Father, how much more is that the case for you and I? How much do we need to be depending on him? So the, the premise then to all of this is, is this relationship with God. He is our Father. We are his children. So there's a clear line there. Verse 7 then takes us to the actual principle itself, which is to pray. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Each of these verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are present tense imperative verbs, which simply means they are commands that are to be continuous. They are ongoing. Keep on praying. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. It's not a one-time thing, but it is to be characteristic of our lives as believers that we are in a a, a condition of asking God, of, of seeking. The asking part, James helps us to understand that by giving us the opposite of it in James 4.2 when he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus is saying here, you will have if you ask. If you ask, you will receive. If you come to God and you understand that you belong to a perfect, kind, and loving Father, then there is not only no harm in asking, but it's actually his desire. Just like a loving parent desires that their child asks for help and doesn't stubbornly try to work through something or foolishly go through something that they need not experience alone without asking for help. He's calling us here to ask. It goes back to that notion that a parent loves to give good gifts. How much more does God long to do that for us? He has promised us a blessing. This is not... This is not reluctance on God's part. This is desire on God's part, God's part to remind us that, that we need to be humble before him. We need to be weak before him because he is God. He is our father. and We can depend on him. Acknowledging our weakness when we ask. It, it, it's an admission that we don't have it all together. Your, your little children... When they are upset and they are in need of help, they've just gotten hurt or something has has got them crying, don't try to, before they come to you, pull it all together and clean themselves up and say, Mother, Father, I, I have a request of you. They just come into your presence asking for help. They, they may be broken. They may be a mess at that moment, as are we in our lives. And they come and they ask. And he's urging us to make that the condition of of how we live before him. There's nothing delightful about an arrogant child who presumes that he will receive good things without asking or a child who stubbornly refuses when you can see that they need help. They are in that position where they are doing something and they are struggling to do it and all of that pride is welling up and they are refusing to ask for help. Isn't that a frustrating moment and you just want them to say, hey, can you give me a hand here? There's nothing delightful about that. Or a child who suddenly demands something, doesn't ask, just sort of puts down the demand. One of the first things you new parents teach your children when they're, they're really small is you start to give them signs. Please, thank you. You want them to learn to ask. To, that you desire to, to care for them. You desire to give to them. But you also desire that they, they don't just say, I want this, or scream, or you know, immediately to, to the step of, of being upset, or just to expect it. You want them to ask. Well, we are called 
to ask, even before an omniscient God who knows our needs before we even speak them, still desires to shepherd us, to father us, and still calls us to be people who are asking him to expose our own weakness, much as Jesus did, by spending time and asking. Seeking. Ask, seek. The person who's asking knows that God is the person from whom to seek. The difference with seek is the verb is just a little bit more intensive. It can also have the idea of, of, of striving. The, the picture of this is in the story Jesus tells of the widow who goes to the judge for justice. And we would almost be tempted to use the word nagging there, but and not though in a negative way, but in a way of giving us the picture that she persists in going to this judge and asking for justice, and he turns her away, and he ignores her, and he doesn't want to be bothered, and she doesn't give up, but rather she persists. And Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, that he taught that story to teach us that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus says, this, this is how your prayer life ought to look as somebody who persists in coming to your Father, in believing that you can seek from Him in a way of humility and faith and trusting that He seeks to, he wants to provide those answers. He wants to provide for you. The word knock, there's nothing magical about it. The word means to rap on a door. It's, the imagery is, it, that Jesus is conveying here is of a closed door through which we seek entrance. And what he's saying here is we don't sort of timidly go up to it and try the knob or tap on the door and it doesn't work and we say, okay, I can't get through that one and we go on. But rather he's saying we go as children who believe that that, that door can be opened, that it's okay to knock on that door persistently because we are bringing it to our Heavenly Father. If you've had little ones and you've ever locked the bedroom door or locked the bathroom door for moment of solitude, right, and your children come, most of the time they don't come and sort of, well, they, they generally will come and try the knob first right away, just, you know, see if they can open. And if it's locked, they don't usually go, oh, mother and father must be busy. I'll move on, right? They knock. And if you pretend you're asleep, they knock even more. And they let you know that they are there and they are waiting and they are expecting your attention. And that's the kind of description that Jesus is giving us for praying, that, that we are being called to pray like a child who is humble and helpless and yet who has faith to believe that the Father who has called us loves us dearly and wants us to persistently ask, seek, and knock with whatever that struggle is, whatever that hardship is, whatever that family relationship or job situation or health issue or trial that we are experiencing, he wants us still to come as children and persistently trust that there are answers to be found in our Heavenly Father. Go to him in faith and ask. And then that leads to the, the last point, which is the promise. Jesus says almost the exact same thing twice in verses 7 through 8. Ask, it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened. Verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus is using repetition there to try to emphasize the point to us that we need to persist in faith and in, in our asking and seeking 
and knocking and not simply give up and walk away, but trust that if we haven't seen an answer, it's okay to persist in asking God and, and bringing whatever that prayer is before him. This is not a license for a genie in the bottle because we've got clear directions from elsewhere in Scripture that tell us that God is going to do what God ordains in his will is best for us, and we need to ultimately rest in his will. So, so just like a parent knows that every request your child brings is not always perfect and right. Everything a child asks for is not going to be answered the way that that child asks for. Some things just aren't going to work out the way that they think they should. But by the same token, if we're honest, I, I don't think most of us are struggling with sort of overwhelming God with, with our asks and our seeks and our knocks. Most of us, if we're struggling, we're struggling in that we haven't really delved deeply into the promises of God in Scripture that he has said for us and are not persisting in prayer to ask for the fulfillment of those things. It's not that we're struggling, feeling like we're doing too much asking. For most of, it, most of us, it's on the side of we probably don't ask nearly enough and we know it. We're not following this through. Charles Spurgeon wrote, when the creator gives his creature the power of thirst, it's because water exists to meet that thirst. When he creates hunger, there's food to correspond to that appetite. Even so, when he inclines us to pray, it is because prayer has a corresponding blessing connected with it. He wants us to ask because he desires to bless us and, and to respond as our heavenly father. So as we set out into 2018, my hope is from this small passage of scripture that we would be challenged and encouraged as individuals and as Grace Bible Church to be people who are committed to persistently asking and seeking and knocking, that we would go to God in prayer, that we would be willing to be transparent and humble before him when we are broken, when our lives are a mess, and in those moments when the great accuser is telling us you are not worthy of standing before him, those are exactly the moments when the Father is urging us to come before him and to ask and to seek and to knock, to come before him in prayer. Asking, for instance, that the God who longs to save sinners would use us in some way to proclaim his gospel and to draw people to himself, that he would use Grace Bible Church and our ministries to save souls, seeking that the God who calls us to be holy even as he is holy would, would impassion us with a desire for holiness and a bitter distaste for sin, seeking that he would be at work in our hearts, transforming us to love holiness, and knocking on the door of a God who says, that brotherly love should characterize Christians as completely unique from the rest of the world. They will know that we belong to Christ because of our love. And so knocking on that door, asking that God would make us to be people who love him, who love his gospel, who love our brothers and sisters, and, and who demonstrate that love actively so that the world might see it. Last Sunday night, if you were here for the 7 o'clock service, I mentioned that I am not much of a movie guy. I, if you talk about movie stuff, I'm usually lost somewhere in the conversation because I probably haven't seen it. So yesterday, I actually went to the movie theater, and I, I think it's like the first time Robin and I were trying to figure this out. It was, it, it's several years, um, and, and went to see the, um, the Churchill movie, uh, Darkest Hour. Movie about Churchill coming to be prime minister over the U.K., 
at precisely a time when Germany is on the move and is conquering Europe, and it is just a situation where um, the, the circumstances are dire. I never, when I go to see these historical movies, I always caveat it with at least this was the writer's description of everything. Um, it, it, I'll, I'll take the speeches as, as being accurate. Some of the other stuff I wonder about sometimes. But nonetheless, I think the scenario was well played out that this was as desperate a time as a country could be at for someone new to be pushed in charge, to have to lead. And Churchill began to use the power of the spoken word to rally his nation to courage to stand up to this threat. And the movie includes the closing of Churchill's speech to Parliament in June of 1940 when he famously says, we shall defend our island whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And as history tells us, five brutal years later and nearly a half million lives lost, the UK emerged victorious from that. That sense of desperation, of urgency, should characterize our lives as believers. It, it should be experienced even in our praying. We know that God is in control. We understand that the victory is ultimately his. We know the end of the story, and we know that victory is assured. But the reality is that the New Testament is also clear that we are engaged in spiritual warfare against sin and against Satan, who longs to diminish our testimony, who longs to, to mar our lives, who longs to interfere with our fellowship with our Savior, who longs to make our neighbors look at our lives and see nothing distinctive about them, who longs to rip our families and our marriages apart. We are in spiritual warfare. And it is with that sense of urgency that God has given us prayer as one of the weapons with which he has called us to fight. Coming before him, asking for him to heal in our homes, in our families, whatever it is, to change our hearts, to lay aside the pretense and the brokenness, not laying it aside in the way that we're sort of dismissing it, but bringing it before him. And being willing as children to stand before him as people who've perhaps made a mess of things for the umpteenth time and saying, Father, I need help here. I, I need a fresh experience of, of your grace and your forgiveness. I need help from your spirit. I need truth from your word. I need fellowship from your people in my walk with Christ. That we would be like children, asking, seeking knocking with the full assurance that our Father longs to hear and answer our prayers. Let's pray together. Lord, God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, maker of everything that our eyes can see and then some beyond to what what the telescopes can barely even grasp. You who made it all by speaking it into existence, who is mighty above all things and holds this all together, who is worthy of our praise, you call us, as Stuart read earlier in Psalm 9, as Jesus says here in Matthew 7, to come, to ask, to come to you, not only as the Lord before whom we bow, but as our Father, from whom we find hope 
and love and forgiveness and grace. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for meeting us in our greatest of needs. Thank you for not letting us walk through the valley of the shadow of the de- a shadow of death with, with ourselves and, and fearing that we are alone, but knowing that wherever it is, we are with you. You are holding us and caring for us. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, who has not come to the place of believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose again to offer forgiveness from sin and eternal life, Lord, I pray that their asking would start there, that you would enable them by turning their heart to call out to Jesus Christ to save them from their sin. Lord, it is clear from these scriptures that this this way we come to you in relationship as father and children is exclusive in one sense, that really only those who belong to you by faith in Jesus Christ can ultimately call you Father in the eternal saving sense of that word. And so we thank you and we count that as the greatest privilege in our lives. Help us, Father, to be a praying people, to be a people who will set aside even just a few minutes tomorrow morning to to start the day by asking for your help, asking for your spirit to fill us, to guide us, to strengthen us. Lord, thank you that for all of those moments when we have failed and tried to confidently perform in the flesh and thought we could do it without asking, that you graciously continue to invite us back into your presence that you graciously encourage us to full fellowship and to continue to ask and to seek and to knock, that you are a forgiving God. Thank you for the hope that we have through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him demonstrating to us what it looks like to ask and to seek to come before you continuously. Help us as this new year begins to be a church that is marked not by in any ways, striving in our own strength or wisdom or eloquence. But help us to be a group of people who are found to be repeatedly humble and weak and dependent and pointing to you as our strength and as our hope. It is in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.